Hello and welcome to Build Back Better, a series of online conversations from For the Region about the future of South West Wales. Welcome everyone to Build Back Better, a series of online conversations from For the Region about everything we want for the future of South West Wales and how to make things better as we emerge from the COVID crisis deal with the climate emergency and deal with the increasing social divide that's tearing communities apart across the world. How do we build back better and use the opportunities of recovery to make better decisions? Now today I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to be talking to Sophie Howe, who as many of you will know is the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. Sophie's role has been described as the, the guardian of the interests of future generations in Wales and I always think, wow, that is a uh, big responsibility. How do, you, how do you sleep at night? So anyway, welcome Sophie, thanks for joining us. Lovely to be with you. You're busy at the moment, you've just released a new document this week, which is a sort of manifesto, I think it's called the Manifesto for the Future, timed in preparation, I suppose, for the Senate elections coming up in 2021. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. How's life going in the Future Generations Commissioner's Office? What, are you, what have you been up to um, and how's lockdown for you? 2020 was always going to be a busy year. It's the, the year that I have to, well, legally required to publish my future generations report. So every future generations commissioner has to publish a report once every five years. So this is the first one. It's actually a four-year publication date in this first round. And so for me and my team, the last, well, all of the last four years, but the last year in particular has been gathering information and analysis around how our public bodies in Wales are going about implementing the Future Generations Act, where they're making progress and where they need to do more. So that report was published on the, the 5th of May. Obviously, we didn't anticipate, well, nobody anticipated a global pandemic pandemic sort of um, landing in the middle of that and I think perhaps initially we thought oh god you know we've spent a huge amount of time and energy on this it's got you know a vast number of recommendations targeted at a range of different policy areas and different organizations and we thought oh god you know the pandemic is going to kind of completely sweep that away what we've discovered is that many of our recommendations are now actually even more relevant as we think about how do we well both deal with the pandemic how do we think about reconstruction and, and recovery and so on and so just after that, that big report, I published a five point plan of areas that the government should focus on in terms of COVID recovery. So focusing on skills for people and especially those furthest from the labour market, BAME people and women and disabled people, focusing on the green green recovery, focusing on, on a shift in transport and using this opportunity of this new way of kind of living and working to really shift towards that a low carbon transport system, or sometimes actually just focusing on the need not to travel at all. And the opportunities around low carbon economy and nature-based solutions and recovery there. So um, yeah. that's the focus of our, our work and advising the government on how they take that forward. It's been an interesting time. I think at the beginning of the COVID outbreak, there was a sort of hopeful time in a way that suddenly we had this opportunity, a bit of a reset, an opportunity to rethink and build back better. And that's a hashtag that everybody's using. I know your office is using that as well as a key message. And there, there was a sort of hopeful time where we thought, look, there's no traffic on the streets everyone's suddenly more interested in where their food is coming from and everyone's got more time to focus on what's important to them 
Do you still feel that hopefulness or do you think we've already built back business as usual? How do you feel that opportunity has been leveraged so far? I'm still feeling optimistic, but obviously the the further we get into the pandemic, the you know the real drastic consequences to um, to the economy and, and loss of um, jobs um, in particular is you, you know is, is right up up front there, which is going to present some a huge number of, of challenges. But you know the Welsh government have you know received an extra four billion pounds in funding, the biggest ever increase in investment. Obviously, this is the biggest ever problem or challenge they've they've had to to deal with. But I'm really encouraged by the narrative that I'm seeing coming out from government. So very much aligned with that five point plan that I published, and I think that here in Wales, there's a real consensus on the what we should do. You know, so it should be a green recovery. We should be focusing on, you know, skills for the future. We should be taking action now in terms of shifting our, you know, our modal shift, if you like. However, I think the real challenge is how we go about doing that. So in my Future Generations report, I talk a lot about this implementation gap. So the aspirational policy um, and, well, legislation in, in terms of the Future Generations Act and an underestimation of what it actually takes to deliver that policy and whether the mechanisms, the structures, the governance that we have at the moment is actually capable of delivering those aspirations. So, you know, some of the things that I talk about are, you know, might seem, you know, about the sort of turgid, you know, how the wheels of government turn and those sorts of things. But those are the really critical things in terms of whether things actually do happen on the ground. So, you know, one of the things that I've proposed is something called a Ministry of Possibility, which is sort of lovingly known in our office as the Harry Potter recommendation. Um, it's not quite that. It's based on um, something that we've seen in the UAE, who are not very progressive um, in some areas, as we know, but actually very progressive in terms of the way they're thinking about governance. So this is basically a kind of a virtual ministry where you bring in the brightest and the best of people from the public, private, third sector, from local government and different levels of governance perhaps the the additional public bodies and so on and those people are responsible for dealing with as they describe the kind of wicked issues we've heard about those before the really difficult issues so one of the things they've been looking at is you know how do we reduce reduce demand for healthcare services for example but that 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 sort of body or that virtual ministry is responsible not just for coming up with the ideas but then actually implementing that so making sure that what you know that the policy is translated into action and I really think that we need some of that in Welsh government I've been encouraged by the approach that we're seeing from Mark Drakeford in terms of bringing people in and you know I've been a member of the Social Partnership Council who meet with the First Minister fortnightly on COVID issues and you know all of the related issues to that but I actually think that if we're going to find different solutions and different ways of doing things we need new people in at every point in a decision making and an implementation space and I think that that might be one of the answers and in fact the OECD just a couple of weeks ago identified that as one of the leading innovations in governance across the world. I mean, what I really love about that Ministry of Possibilities idea is the kind of whole system approach. We talk about it a lot for the region, that you need that real cross-sector, people from all different sort of sections of society, sections of industry, and actually the best 
solutions emerge when you have the broadest diversity of people in the conversation. And, and I think it's Margaret Wheatley that says, if you want to change the conversation, you need to change who's in it and actually bring different people, different points of view. Yeah. And I'm also reading a book called Creativity Incorporated by the guy who was really, who started Pixar. And he talks about the importance of creativity, but you need diverse perspectives and you need to create safe spaces for that kind of really kind of radical thinking or just different ideas to come forward. And, and if, if that can be sort of nurtured within government, it offers great possibilities. You're absolutely right. And again, I've been talking a lot about the, the role of, of creativity in helping us to think about different solutions. So you, you might have seen in the press that I've been calling for a, a creative basic income or creative participation income because, okay, we've got a big problem with our creative. So our poets, our artists, the things that the people, sorry, the dogs are kicking off the um <laughs> people who make life interesting if you like big challenge for them in terms of lots of them on a freelance you know operation of freelance all of the venues are closed so their incomes have pretty much ceased so we need to give some sort of financial support to them but let's think about that in terms of how do we also use their skills to help to support different types of thinking in, in public services. We've got a huge problem in our town and city centres now. We have at the moment, but likely to be a real ongoing issue. Shops closing, them becoming sort of desolate and, you know, and, and so on. Well, you know, if we think that the way to solve that is just by focusing on retaining our anchor stores, yes, that's important. But actually, we need to go beyond that. We need to be bringing in creative thinking. We need to be thinking about town and city centres being cultural hubs. What is it that's going to draw people back in? Let's think about some of the creative things that they've done in London, where they've turned, you know, former quite grim areas into these real hotspots of culture and creativity. And I think there's real scope for us having a kind of double whammy there of supporting our freelancers and our creatives and bringing them in, you know, to help us to sort of to rebuild. And I know Emily, who's here with me, is working with me on a on the Women's Equality Network mentoring program. So we have a mentoring relationship. And we've been talking about this from your background, haven't we, Emily, in terms of how do you help to rebuild town and city centres? How do you bring creativity into that? I don't know if you've got any views. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I come from a sort of business improvement district background. And I think across the industry of people that work in that space across the whole UK, there's a, almost a sense of panic at the moment with a lot of the jobs that are currently lifted out of town and city centres. And I think initially there was a thought that they might go back now a lot of them probably aren't going to go back or not going to go back full-time particularly you know in Wales the Welsh government have been speaking about that they want I forget the exact percentage but a certain amount of people to be working within a short commute from their home and so we aren't going to go back to the the normal situation but I think there's a lot of people at the moment still trying to figure out how we can do that because that's their response to how a town and city should should look and should feel and actually, you know, like Sophie said, we need this kind of creative possibilities kind of space to move into. And that's, you know, historically what town and city centres have always done. They've not, they've only been driven by, you know, what we call comparison retail since maybe the, the 50s and the 60s, really, in the way we know it now. And so towns and cities consistently evolve and the way that they operate has always changed, quite often based on monumental occasions like we're in now and yeah, it's an opportunity that we need to work with proactively rather than trying to find a way to scramble back to old news, really. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about the importance of creativity as a force for regeneration in our 
high streets than in our town and city centres. We talk about that a lot in Swansea. We've got the new arena being built, but how are we nurturing the kind of grassroots creativity, creative enterprises and, and creative people who just want to bring life and activity back into kind of neglected areas of the city. And, and I suppose, Emily, your role with the Cardiff Business Improvement District you know, is really looking at that, how you get the mix right and how you bring creativity and creative people and keep them in the city. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's difficult to know at this point. There are obviously parts of the ordinary world that are going to come back, but, you know, a lot of the workforce in Cardiff is a workforce that doesn't need to be there. And, you know, the businesses that we represent are going to be changing their business models and operating in a different way because they've understood not only is it better for their workforce, but it's better a lot of the time for their bottom line. And so even if there was the well-being economy case for moving everyone back into city centres, which I don't think there is, there's not the sort of the, the hard money case, which is, you know, what's always going to drive the majority of businesses at the end of the day. So talk to me, Emily, about the role that you're involved in now then with the Future Generation Commissioner's Office. It's a women's equality network scheme that you're part of. Tell me about that. Yes. So when Wales have been running, I think this is the third year that they've run the programme, basically a mentoring scheme based on the idea of encouraging more women and more diverse women into roles in sort of political and public life um, and about creating the avenues for people who don't necessarily know how or where to access that space to kind of develop the networks and the skills to do that and I think it ties back to what both of you have been saying about if you want to change the conversation you need to change the people in the conversation and this is a scheme that proactively creates that opportunity for sadly a relatively limited number of women you know I think there's about 20 odd of us on the on the program each year but um, it's yeah taking definite steps in that positive direction. Fantastic. Sophie, it's a key theme in your manifesto for the future about setting really ambitious targets for getting underrepresented groups back into work, into key jobs and key roles within the public sector. And you talk a lot about skills. I suppose in hosting these mentees, you're doing your bit to enable and support that. Yes, well, I've been part of the, well, I've been a mentor on the scheme since it began. And my first mentee is working in number 10 now. And my second one has just got a board position. So no pressure, Emily. We're, um, <laughs> she's, uh, she's doing fantastically well. But I think we need to be supporting each other as women and, and finding space to bring women into the conversations and to, to help them to build their networks and so on. And I think it's critically important that we do that. And when I talk about the kind of how we go about rebuilding post-COVID, we have to sort of bear that in mind because we could have mass investment in green jobs, we could be retrofitting housing, we could be investing in renewable energy. All of those things are really important. But actually, we could end up doing that and just targeting those jobs towards a small minority of people who are already in a, in a reasonable position. What we need to be thinking is, how do we make sure that women are the renewable energy technicians of, of the future? How do we make sure that the low number of people that we've got going into forestry if we try and increase that that they're not just all white men how do we get those Bain communities connected into those jobs how do we target the people furthest from the labor market so just setting up a scheme which says hey 
okay, here's investment in green industries and here's loads of new jobs that are going to be created without doing that really targeted approach in terms of who, who, is, who is going to apply for those apprenticeships and have the skills to do those jobs. We're going to be missing massive opportunities and could end up actually having sort of unintended consequences. I've also, I'm about to start a piece of work which is going to look at the equality implications of future trends. So starting from a, um, a baseline, I suppose, where some really significant inequalities have been exposed during the pandemic. So for Black and Asian minority ethnic communities in particular, we know that women have borne the brunt of the caring during lockdown where, where schools have been closed. We know that women have been more likely to lose their jobs or felt that they've had to leave their jobs. So that's the sort of baseline that we're starting at. And what if then we start building on some of those future trends? So what does homeworking mean? If we go for the Welsh Government target of 30%, I think it could be possibly higher than that. That could be a game changer for disabled people who are better able to work, could be a game changer for women, those with caring responsibilities, for example. But how do we make sure that there are not these unintended consequences? So what we don't want almost is like a two-tier workforce. So, you know, the ones who return to the office and are still in the old presenteeism culture and and, you know, they're valued because they're there and present. And then the ones who were kind of outside of the office, we need to really have this in our minds so we can guard against it. What about the impact of the aging population? So when we've got double the number of over 65s by 2036, where is the brunt of that caring responsibility going to fall? And what does that mean that we need to be thinking about now? Who's going to pay the price of climate change? We know from other parts of the world that it's those who live in, in poverty. And we know from Wales in the UK that if you're living in poverty you're more likely to be living in an area of high air pollution and you're less likely to have access to public open space so these equality considerations have got to be weaved in to how we're thinking about what we do to um to reconstruct post-covid i think there's a lot there about making sure we're balancing all the priorities and not getting so focused on recovery that we forget we abandon our other values and that comes through really strongly in these 48 recommendations that you've published this week we've talked about some of those already it's interesting to look through i I recommend everyone to look those up you can just type in manifesto for the future and you'll have this list of sophie's 48 recommendations investing in industries and technologies of the future you also talk about the food system and having a strategy for a sort of farm to fork food system. One of the really interesting recommendations here is about a basic income, piloting the idea of a basic income. You've talked about the creative sector and I couldn't agree more. How can we better support creative people and recognize the huge value that they deliver to our society and economy above and beyond the actual jobs that they might or might not have and you've talked about opportunities for a shorter working week and yeah radical rethinking really talk a little bit about that why do you think a universal basic income could be worth a try well, I think that it's risen up the political agenda during the, the pandemic in terms of, you know, we've seen vast numbers of, of people who've basically fallen through the kind of safety nets of our of, of our welfare system. And although it's a bit like inequality and the socioeconomic disadvantage that has made the position worse for black and Asian minority ethnic communities many of the people who've fallen through that safety net they've been falling through for quite a while so our freelancers those who are working in the the 
gig economy and so on. These people who, you know, it used to be the case that you'd enter into a job and that would be a career for life or you'd move from one job to another job and it'd be full time and, you know, so on and so on. And that's just not the case anymore. So rapid increases in the gig economy. I saw a stat the other day, which I think in, in America, there are now more people working in the gig econ- economy than in permanent jobs. And so our welfare structure, I don't think sort of supports that. So I'm thinking, you know, to the future. But I'm also thinking about what do we, we know that the impacts that poverty has on our wider well-being. So the socioeconomic determinants of our health, so if you were in a poor income, you're more likely to be living with within ill health. We know the impact that it has on, on children and so on. And I'm really interested in the study pilot that was taken forward in Finland, which, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, is this going to stop people getting jobs? Or, you know, is this going to make them less likely for them to get jobs? Actually, the study in Finland didn't show that. It showed a marginal, I mean, a small, but a marginal increase in the number of people who sought employment. But what it showed a big increase in was their improvements in their well-being. So so they're a bit, you know, the improvements in their in their mental health, physical health, people were less stressed. And I think there's something about a saying, what is it that we value? Is your value placed on how many hours you work and how much money you earn? Or actually, should we be saying that the point of government policy and the point of interventions is to support the overall well-being of its, you know, citizens, of its population? And therefore, I think we need to be thinking around how could a basic income help to sort of support that? Now, more widely, I think if we focused on people's well-being, we would see longer term gains. We would see more cohesive communities. We might see less burden on the, the you know state care and demand for health services. If we focused on people living their lives a bit better. So you have a basic income, perhaps combined with a shorter working week, which means you are able to walk the kids to school instead of going in your car because you dashing to get to, to work for nine, that you are able to have some time spending time with your elderly relatives or neighbours or what have you, because you've got that kind of capacity and you don't have to worry about the income that's, that's coming in or reduced income. I think that there's a huge range of well-being possibilities around that. Of course, a universal basic income or a basic income or whatever you want to call it has, has multiple different ways of doing it. And so what I'm doing at the moment, I'm not sort of advocating one particular way. I've commissioned some research with autonomy to look at these issues. What would be the benefits to well-being across our seven well-being goals if there was a basic income in Wales? And how could it be done? Because there's lots of complexities around the devolution settlement and, and so on. But I just think it's one of those progressive ideas that may not be implemented in the next year. But I think it's something that we should be working towards a pilot of when we can. I heard Naomi Klein talking about out of great crises like this, you know, how change happens is in times of great crisis, those sort of decision makers look around for the, the ideas that are lying around was, was her phrase, which I think is a reference to something someone else had said in the past. You know, what are the ideas that are lying around? And I wondered when I heard her talking about that, whether that is our role, your role in the Future Generations Commissioner's Office, our role at For the Region, trying to talk about progressive and positive ideas for what the future could look like is that our role to leave good ideas lying around to do the research absolutely say, I think it's... and to, you know do the kind of feasibility studies so that as and when the moment comes the groundwork has been laid do you think about that I think that's absolutely um, my role, your role I think you know it's it's a role that absolutely needs doing because 
you know, I think what we've seen, you know, through the position that we're in in terms of climate change is more of the same is not the answer. It's not working and we need to think of things radically different, uh, differently. And, you know, um, you often people often start with, oh, no, it's not it's not possible. You know, and there's that saying, isn't there? They say it's impossible until it's done. And you're absolutely right. You know, the NHS and the welfare state were born out of, you know, particular crises and challenges and, and so on. And people said then it's not possible. You can't possibly do that. How will we possibly make that work? And so I right from the outset of taking up this office, I've talked about the art of the possible. I had a whole programme of work called the art of the possible, which mapped out the steps that public bodies could take to meet the wellbeing goals. And I think that that's the space that we need to, to be in. You're absolutely right in terms of let's sort of seize the moment. So COVID really has accelerated a large number of both trends and different types of thinking. So many of you will know about my opposition to the M4 relief road. You know, when I was saying back two years ago, the trajectory and the trends are around increased working from home. Do we really need to be spending one and a half billion quid on building a motorway when instead perhaps we should be investing in supporting people to work from home, digital, maybe, you know, local working hubs and, and so on. People were saying, well, what's that mad futures woman on about? You know, we can't, that, that's never going to happen or it's going to be years and years off. Now, obviously, I, again, I wasn't expecting a global pandemic to intervene in this, but actually, you know, we have accelerated. We wouldn't have been doing this interview on Zoom this time last year. We would have, you know, you would have travelled from somewhere or I would have travelled from somewhere. And, you know, and now that has fundamentally changed. So it must make us rethink how we go about doing things. And I'm really pleased actually to see that you know in terms of the government narrative they're very much in this space you know to be fair to them right throughout the pandemic obviously for health reasons and so on they've been saying work from home if you can it hasn't been get back to the office get back to the office because in the longer term that doesn't really make much sense there has been this focus on the foundational economy how do we focus on the sort of the hyper local support that and i think that there's real potential for even further kind of growth in the, the hyper local as we're all continuing to work from home and so on so i do think these kind of radical ideas perhaps their times for some of them their time is coming and they are actually being implemented we've been working with the government on a national transport strategy which i don't think would have been in the place that it's getting to the positive place that it's getting to now is in draft it possibly wouldn't have been there we would have had to have a real fight on our hands to get it to that place this time last year and then there's other things which as i said you know i think we just need to put out there we need to say right you know let's raise the aspiration here and let's be thinking about some radically different things yeah as you say the art of the possible and just encouraging people to think differently and move away from the the business as usual some great examples there of where the welsh government is taking a really progressive stand do you think that the well-being economy will be high on the agenda in the senate elections do you think it will be there'll be broad consensus across all the political stripes or do you think those issues will be brushed aside some more pressing kind of economic issues what what do you think the the issues will be in the elections? Well, I think it's certainly within the consciousness of all Welsh political parties in a different way to their, their UK counterparts. And I think the Future Generations Act is a large part of that. Like every other commissioner and, you know, most other sort of bodies who are trying to influence policy, we get the, you know, the updates of who said what in the Senate and, you know, when they're raising issues that you're interested in. And we're seeing an increasing number of members of the Senate from all political colours raising issues around the Future Generations Act, around the wellbeing economy, of course, 
like can we have got a shadow minister for the for the future in Delhi Jewel? Welsh government have just signed up to be members of the Wellbeing Alliance of governments, working with Finland and Scotland and New Zealand and and so on. And certainly the focus on the Future Generations Act as forming the government strategy going forward for COVID recovery is is very much front and centre. You hear that from Jeremy Miles, from Rebecca Evans, and indeed from the First Minister regularly. So I think, you know, it's absolutely there. And I think, you know, when they're forming new policies, they are being formed around the Future Generations Act. Not always, not perfectly, but there is this, this shift. The big challenge, of course, is when you stop doing things. And in our Future Generations report, we've got a series of policy recommendations and then what we call process recommendations, which are kind of stop-starts. So you need to start doing more of this and actually you need to stop doing that. So as an example, one of the challenges that I've levied to government in the last year is the last full budget, we saw increased spending on the climate emergency. That's really encouraging and indeed on, on nature-based solutions and nature emergency also great. However, what I'm saying to them is you need to be mapping the carbon impact of your spend across your entire budget. Because what I can tell you that you're doing is you're spending a few million over here and then about 70% of your infrastructure plans are based on roads. So it kind of cancels each other out. So we're getting to a good place in terms of new ideas, new policy, new spending. But there are those tough decisions then around what you stop doing and how do you, you know, shift the culture in those areas as well. I was talking to somebody from the DVLA recently and they were talking about how they've been really measuring their carbon impact across the organisation and they've got some real sort of exemplary ways of working which we, we all hope to see rolled out because I think as you've already said the key thing is implementation. I always think we're so lucky here in Wales in a way we're in such a great position with with having the you know the seven well-being goals already clear in our minds there is as you say really broad consensus around those so we're not anymore questioning you know what do we want how do we want things to be we know what the vision is and then the real challenge is implementation i'm involved in the establishment of the well-being economy alliance hub for wales and that's in its very early stages we're talking about how that alliance could help to influence policy and uh, help to engage the public in talking about the well-being economy but a key theme that keeps coming through all these meetings is a sense of real urgency around climate emergency and around these big, you know, economic and environmental disasters that are looming, that we're not moving fast enough. And how, how can we speed things up and, and, you know, spread and share good practice? Where do you see the greatest opportunity to make change happen quickly? When you talk about implementation, what are some of the key points? I mean, I, I think that some of it is, as I said, where we stop spending and redirect our spending in different ways. So I think that there, you know, the the shift now in terms of transport modal shift there, I think we've seen some significant investment going into active travel as part of the COVID response. And we're seeing a number of local authorities seek to do that in a way which, yes, does it in, in an urgent way, but then is sort of seeking to, to do that in a longer term way. I think that the, you know, investment in industries of the future. So I think, you know, in the South Wales industrial cluster, which I don't know if you've come across, but these are representatives from Tata, from Salsa Steel, from a range of different manufacturing organisations who are now working towards carbon zero and carbon capture. There's a huge potential opportunity there around job creation in, in those industries 
those you know low carbon industries of the future and i you know and i want to see the welsh government play in a bigger part in um in some of that i think you know there's significant opportunities around improving the quality of our homes so so we're reducing carbon emissions there whilst also providing opportunities for jobs and regenerating communities but again i think you know the government through the innovative housing program i think there's about nine and a half million pounds going into that this year which is a drop in the ocean really so one of the other areas that we are working on from my office is we're working with the new economics foundation to find some solutions to innovative financing around that because you know we're looking at probably about a billion pounds a year with financing around that so nine and a half million isn't really cutting it but you know there are opportunities now for this new investment from government to be really upping the scale of ambition on some of that and setting a longer term trajectory around funding so that we're able to get the skills pipeline in place and seek those additional benefits. And then, of course, going back to the how you go about doing these things, what I'm also challenging some of our housing associations and government to think about is, OK, if we're retrofitting homes, that's brilliant. But what more could we do? Could we be building in green infrastructure? Could we be cleaning and green in our communities, building in sustainable urban drainage? So the point that I'm making is that it goes back to this art of the possible. You're going to do this one thing. It's going to have how many benefits can you drive out of that thing if you think about it in a bit of a broader sense? Money that we would be spending anyway, how can we just leverage multiple benefits and value from that spend? And I know procurement is a key issue there, isn't it? About making sure that the way in which public bodies spend their money really supports the well-being economy, foundational economy and sustainable development. How much is your role about holding organisations to account? And what are your current thoughts around whether the, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act has teeth? And what are the consequences for organisations who make decisions that perhaps aren't in alignment with the of the act you've spoken before about this i'm interested to have an update really are you thinking about calling anyone in and telling anyone off what's the plan very much the sort of early phase of my work has been to support public bodies to help embed the cultural change that's required through the legislation and so on first few years of the legislation was them getting their plans in place and setting their objectives and doing all of those sorts of things. The first sort of, I suppose, more formal monitoring we did last year. So we looked at, we asked all of the 44 public bodies to work with us on a self-reflection exercise, really looking at, you know, what progress have you made? Where have the barriers been? Why, why haven't you been able to go further? And, you know, what could you do next? And I think that sort of, you know, working with rather than beating up, you know, I think it does reap broader benefits. But there are some areas that I've been concerned about. Well, there's lots of areas that I'm concerned about, but ones that I've been particularly focused on. So procurement is one. So I still don't think that we're seeing the leadership around procurement. I still think it's been seen as a back office function rather than a boardroom function. And I think that there's something there about holding accounting officers, chief executives and so on to account on how they are actually spending public money for wider well-being gain. There's also some particular challenges in the health sector. So this is where I'm not convinced that government is actually helping rather than hindering implementation of the Future Generations Act in health. 
So on the one hand, you know, we're saying to health boards, right, you need to be focused on planning for the long term. You need to shift your services to prevention and all of these things. On the other hand, the day to day management of the health service requires them to report on short term waiting targets and, and so on and so on, short term funding streams, et cetera, et cetera. Now, both of those, I'd intended to use my more formal powers, Section 20 review powers. I triggered the procurement review just before we went into lockdown. We have had a bit of a pause and we're picking that back up now. The health review I hadn't triggered. And, you know, I think most people appreciate now is not the time to be going in sort of all guns blazing into looking at health. We need to give them some space to sort things out with the pandemic and so on. Sorry, we lost Sophie there just for a minute with an internet glitch, which we're all getting used to with this new digital way of working. But you were just wrapping up around the sort of the accountability and the powers you've got. And probably, as you say, a more collaborative approach perhaps works better. I think it does. But I think that there are areas where we've gone in and we provided that that support. And we, we tend to think of it as a, as a sort of a, a cycle, if you like. We identify that there's a problem. The early phases of the legislation has been very much around we've got this legislation, but then there's all this other policy regulation which completely contradicts it. And the planning system is a really good example of that. So we'll work with government and others to reform that system to get it all aligned. So there's now no excuse really about how it's actually implemented. And the next phase will give them some, you know, some, some time to get to grips with that. The next phase then is if we're still seeing these problems in the planning system, that is an area which is, you know, in my sights probably for a year or so, a year or so's time to actually be saying, okay, I'm going to go back in now and have a look and perhaps review how this is actually working. Likewise, with the transport system, new national transport strategy coming out, we work worked with the government to revise WellTag, which is the process you have to go through to, to decide what sort of transport scheme is going to be implemented in particular areas. And I'm not convinced on that, that the cultural change is actually happening. And I think that although the documentation is right, I think we have, we're seeing a lot of people retrofitting their idea to build another road to the WellTag approach. So that is in my sights to go back in and perhaps take some tougher action. That's good to hear. And I do agree, you know, the culture change is happening, isn't it? And Wellbeing of Future Generations Act comes up in most conversations that you're part of. And I think there's great alignment in Wales around the values and real desire at every level to actually make change happen. And, and as we learn and try different things, then we recognise what the barriers are and start to unpick some of those challenges. And I think, again, looking at these 48 recommendations, yes, there's such great stuff in there that really clarifies what we all want. You know, I'd love to live in the Wales that's described in your 48 recommendations. It's a real sort of hopeful document and we'll look forward to seeing loads of that in in the various parties manifestos as we come forward towards the elections i just wanted to finish off really sophie by asking whether whether you've got any ask from us and when i say us i mean people businesses across southwest wales ordinary members of the community really what can we do to support your work to support the act to support its implementation what would you ask of all of us I suppose I can start with asking you to use your influence to get behind those recommendations in the manifesto. You know, you have an incredible platform amongst you. You have lots of influence into different parts of government and political systems and, and, and so on. And really the purpose of this uh, manifesto, which is drawn from the future generations 
report is we want to build a movement around it. We want everyone saying to their politicians, this is the Wales that I want to live in and to really kind of get behind that. Um, I think there's then how do you translate that into your everyday actions, whether you're a business owner or whether you're a third sector organisation or whether you're part of a public service board or what have you. How do you take those principles and the principles of the, the legislation and really be challenging yourself? Because I think, you know, in what we've seen in these early phases of the legislation is people, you know, really getting behind it and going, yes, this is brilliant and doing particular things. But I would like people to be challenging themselves even more. So if you're, you know, if you work in health and you're thinking, right, okay, my thing is about, you know, how do we drive this health service towards prevention and earlier intervention and so on? Great. But how are you also thinking about the environment? And if you work in an environmental NGO, how are you thinking about the connections to the economy? So I think it's about us trying to reach outside of our silos as well and challenging ourselves, which is, you know, what I say to all of our public bodies. You might start off with a mission to build a house. How you go about building that house can have multiple benefits. You could build it through bricks with bricks and mortar and people could live in it and, you know, to a certain extent, happy days. But if you did do that in a way which procures from the foundational economy, which works upstream to get the skills pipeline right with the right people in it, the most disadvantaged people, those who are most underrepresented, if you think about it in a way that is also going to create space for nature through green infrastructure, you know, I could go on and on, but it's like, how do we do the, the, the our initial mission in the broadest possible way for broadest benefit? And if each one of us can carry that through, in the roles that we do day in, day out, then we would be building, I think, that Wales, which is set out in that vision in the manifesto. Great. I think that's really clear. It echoes something that Jane Davidson said as well about, you know, we're building a movement here. It's going to take all of us. We all have influence in the various roles we hold and the communities that we're part of to advocate for this stuff and then also to implement it ourselves. It's not always about pointing to government and saying they should do this and they should do that. What can all of us do in every decision we make to reinforce the act and to build that broader movement? It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Sophie. Thank you so much for coming on today and uh, updating us on everything that you're up to. It's been really enlightening and I hope for our listeners a really useful and valuable conversation. And thank you to Emily as well, your When Wales mentee. Great to hear from you, Emily, about that scheme. Sounds really progressive. Thanks all for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sophie Howe as much as I did. Just to point you in the direction of her manifesto for the future, uh, which is online at the moment, share that, use it, talk about it and see what influence you've got in the role that you play in uh, all the various aspects of your life. If we can all work together against these big ambitious aims for what the future of Wales could be, I think we can make massive progress. It's not, it's not quick and easy, but change is happening, culture is shifting and I think there are lots of reasons to be optimistic. Until next time, it's been a pleasure talking to you all. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Bye.